In a world where heresy blankets the airwaves, religious stuffed shirts suck the life out of Sunday morning, and prosperity teachers rob grandmothers of their pensions, three unassuming ministers endeavor to shine the light of biblical theology and put the fun back in fundamentalism. Broadcasting live from the Hall of Dogma... This week by Tightwads and Cheapskates Everywhere. Welcome in to episode 93 of the Gospel Friends. I am Reverend Verbage. I am Chase Thompson. And I am Emmanuel the General Marsh. Why are we doing last names this week, guys? Or uh, Chase? I'm, I'm on a no serial kick for the next couple of weeks, so I feel like if I were to use my serial-related Gospel Friends nickname, it would make me um, hungry. Nice. Okay, well, I don't give my name out on this podcast because chances are one day it's all going to go south, and I don't want people to know who I am or associated with the show. Well, as much secrecy as we try to shroud this show in with uh, our code names and code names for our church and everything, I I do think a few people uh, have figured us out as evidenced by the fact that a young man from Arkansas will be uh, visiting with us tomorrow, and a few people from Ohio did the same thing a couple of weeks ago. So, oh, Yeah, good old Mr. Brad Melton coming to the Hall of Dogma Church in the morning. Uh, let me explain my episode 93 really quickly, because I know you guys are just can't wait to find out. Uh, I am on the edge of my seat. So I don't actually know what classical Persian is, but in classical Persian finger counting, the number 93 is represented by closed fists. And so um, around the first century, um, people, uh, poets, would refer to someone's lack of generosity by saying uh, they were, uh, their hand made a 93. So, or they were a 93-er. And it meant they were cheap or not generous people. So... That sounds very urban legendish. How can the number 93 be represented by a closed fist? I can see it. It was not classical Persian finger counting. Yeah. I, I, you got you well, What is 91? Are you not up on your classical Persian finger counting? Makes sense. Well, there's only so much you can do with one, you know, with a hand, but okay. That's that's interesting. I'm going to do a little research on that. Manuel could probably show you some things he could do with his hand that was. <laughs> please, wonder please what they was that sentence. <laughs> <laughs> it was <laughs> some type of sign language that you could understand. Yeah, I know probably I know, so. I know plenty of signs. I would have went with a uh, brought to you by Snoop Dogg. His debut album, which shall remain nameless here, debuted in 1993. Really? Oh, oh wow! Yep. I'm not. Is that for Rizzle? Yep. Did you okay. say um, for Rizzle? I, I might have. It's a great album. You can listen to it from the beginning to end with non-stop. Nothing but hits. What's My Name, Jan and Juice. Can you listen to it without having to repent? No. I don't I don't repent, but, but, but I don't know if that helps you any. <laughs> well, it may not. All right, since episode 92, which was recorded about seven weeks ago, I think, um, we have, we've determined a few things. Number one, we determined that apparently editing the show is not as easy as, 
<laughs> as was originally thought. Uh, well, I kind of thought you just recorded the show and then pressed a button and and it was uploaded onto iTunes. You can do that. It turns out that's not true. As long as there's not a lot of gaffes and, you know, um, editing takes a while. I've done a lot of video editing and audio editing. It it You should be paying Nick. Let's just put it that way. Uh, mm. it, well, apparently we should have been paying Nick because he's not here anymore. <laughs> yeah. so. Yeah. It, well, that it, sounds fairly ominous. Nick is taking a sabbatical. Yeah, Nick is on sabbatical. But the last episode, Nick had I. left. I.e. in jail. Nick had left, and uh, all we knew was that Emmanuel was no longer in the uh, Hall of Dogma, our Facebook group, hallofdogma.com, uh, which he had pretty much been running that place since day one. Yes. And then all of a sudden he was gone. Nick was gone. So uh, things were, were, were pretty rough. But think thanks to a um, reconciliation lunch meeting that I had with the general last week, I think we were able to calm him down from everything he was upset about. So he's now, now I understand at the, he's at now the end of the show, he's going to reveal who he had a conflict with, uh, <laughs> the, the specific person and the thing that person said. Is that correct? No, I, don't, I didn't have a conflict. I just... That was that was a tease, Emmanuel, you know, to get people to listen to the end. Oh yeah, yeah. By the end of this episode, the, the person who I had a conflict with, I'll be outside of the, their house. How about nice. That? <laughs> Weaponry. They will be unmasked nice. in the ring. Yeah. All right. Speaking of Hollow Dogma, before we get into tonight's show. Um, well, before we do that, though, David, what are you chewing on? A uh, piece of ice. Yeah, I hear it. It sounds like you're chewing on a rock. Uh, well, it's kind of like a rock. It's ice. Okay. I would like this. <laughs> okay, so before we get into the show, I, I, I need to mention something about the Hall of Dogma. So the Hall of Dogma is our uh, Facebook group, which you can get to through uh, hallofdogma.com. That's probably the um, best way to get a hold of us or email, which is thegospelfriends at gmail.com. Now, I would give you the other ways that you could contact us, but there's a couple of problems. Number one, the Twitter is a, uh, a wasteland. Uh, essentially, uh, Chase Chase killed the Twitter uh, a while back. So, and Periscope. wait, 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 and that's, that's not true. And, no, Periscope is dead. Yeah, Periscope, Periscope is dead. The Twitter is on its it's on live support. I did tweet about episode 92. Did you? Okay. Yeah. I just didn't put a picture there. Now I would recommend leaving voicemails. The problem with that is I don't know that Chase will know how to edit them into the show. So you, you could leave us a voicemail. We will hear it. Um, for example, uh, Joshua Dean, Hall of Dogma Church member, left us a funny voicemail a couple of weeks ago, um, which it was him calling our voicemail and pretending to order fast food and get upset when no one answered. And that was really funny, but we just don't know how to edit it into the show. So maybe when Nick comes back, we could have like an entire episode that is just of the backlog <laughs> voicemails. That's a great plan. Podcasts do that. They do voicemail shows. Uh, you could do that. That's good. Okay, we'll so mail one in one week. So we're going to do that, just do that. voicemail shows, maybe with a little commentary. But, uh, all right, so back to the Hall of Dogma on Facebook. So we always do this little tagline, uh, hallofdogma.com. It's a closed group, but if you ask to let us in, more than likely, we will let you in unless you're spam. Okay, so that that's kind of our typical. Whoa, whoa, whoa! Some people like spam. It's you fry it, mm. you get some mayo. Listen, my mom 
my mom used to make fried spam when I was. Uh, when I was a kid. It makes that awesome sound when it comes to the can, like. I <laughs> <laughs> made my skin crawl a little bit. Emmanuel, would you rather have spam or Vienna sausages? I think I'd go spam. Like I. Oh. I like oh. Vienna sausages a little bit, but after like three, <laughs> they, they start to disgust me. Okay. <laughs> And it's hard for me to keep them down, so I'd go spam. All right, one more. Let me do spam versus deviled ham. What would you do? Did you ever have deviled ham? It's been a long time. I think I'd go deviled ham. I, did, I would, too. I like deviled ham a little bit better than, than spam. Um, I don't even know what deviled ham is. Uh, imagine if, uh, not taste-wise, but like consistency and the way it looks, imagine if you took some ham, chewed it up real fine, and spit it into oh, a gee. can. It would look You're like right. that. That's exactly, that's exactly what it Here's looks like. I like just I, I don't it tastes it. great. I love it. I love the way it tastes. And, and, I mean, I'm, I'm opposed to meat that's spreadable. <laughs> uh, but if we just go and taste uh, deviled ham, uh, taste tastes better. Yeah, deviled ham. I mean, my mom. I'm not sure. Made, I believe you. My mom would make deviled ham sandwiches, and they were, they were good. I liked them. So yeah. Now, now you may not know what this is because I, I will. T- I, I got to tell you real quick. I'm sorry, man, but I do have to say I would pretend it was cat food when I was eating it. <laughs> Why? I don't know. I mean, I was a kid. I just thought that you know. It made you feel manly. To, to yeah. Eat. Yeah. Uh, now, I, you guys probably hadn't had this, but it's along these same lines of these these meats we're t- discussing. Souse meat. I knew you were going to say souse. Well, remember, I'm the blackest. Uh, you are oh, the wait, blackest gospel blast, friend blackest when I'm not around. Uh, <laughs> so I, I figured I figured Chase would know what souse was, but have you had souse meat? I, I'll be honest with you, Emmanuel. It scares me a little bit. I never have. T- tell us how, how it tastes. Uh, it's oh, been a long. I don't even remember how it tastes. To be honest with you, it's been I a long. I have seen this stuff. I've seen souse meat in the uh, the souse loaf in the. Uh... It's it's made out of generally. This is what it's made out of. This is I'm not making this up. It's made out of cow face. <laughs> cow face. Cow, cow face or pig face. Pig's face. Uh, feet like chicken feet. Cow feet. It's yeah. yeah. Souse is pickled meat and trimmings, usually made from pig's feet, chicken feet, cow's tongue, or other parts, and then soaked in a brine made of water, lime juice, cucumbers, blah blah blah. So oh, it's basically the leftover yummy. stuff. I mean, yeah, it's it's like uh, even the hot dogs have gotten their take, and now we're <laughs> <laughs> like exactly. Now we're down to the next in line. This makes hot dogs look like they're like. Like USDA grade A. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, what's down the line from sows? Like the, the ground up hooves and things like that. I think that's in sows. Oh, well, that's I, know, I really do. I was going to ask you guys if you ever had corned beef and hash out of a can, which I always liked as a kid. Um, yeah, out of a can, bad. I don't. Yeah. But I like corned beef. I never had it out of a can. It's it's also very like a. Like a paste almost with little chunks of potato in it, but actually the souse meat I think I, this is the like I'm looking at some of it, it actually looks like it's chunks of meat in a gelatin that's that that sounds about right mm. 
Well, this is this is fascinating. Well, hey, folks, real quick, we're going to take a break from the Weird Things That People Eat podcast, and we'll be right back with a word from our sponsor, Red Devil. <laughs> and we're okay, back. All right, so in the Hall of Dogma, so we, we talk about the spam accounts and we us keeping them out. That's how we got on that down that road. I didn't even remember that, but okay, good. I'm <laughs> but, glad to know. So tonight um, I got a message on Facebook that someone was reporting – a post out of the Hall of Dogma, and I went and checked it up and uh, checked it out. And one of our Hall of Dogma members, Batawu Tupelo, no wait, let me try it again, Batawa Tulupale, um, was posting some questionable pictures. Oh gosh! <laughs> uh, entitled Six Deadly Signs of Ovarian Cancer That Will Kill You Silently," uh, but it it had some rather uh, odd-looking photos. Um, I'll have to send you this, Chase, in text message. Uh, no, no, I, I don't. I, I'm good. So, no. no, his his wife I'm is going to think he's been, real quick. His wife is going to think he's been sexting. <laughs> so, so I get a uh, I, I get a I get a message, and then there, there's a comment on it that says, "No one click. This is spam. Like it takes you to some type of a uh, a bad site." So. Of course, my first thought was, well, who let this goofball in? So I, I went to um, I went to check on old Batawa Tulupe, and he uh, he was he came into the Hall of Dogma two weeks ago by none other than our very own Chase Thompson. <laughs> that is that is the worst picture that you sent me just there. Hey, Chase, do you have any of that? Is the worst picture I've ever seen. <laughs> Ovarian cancer, by the way, is not a joke at all. But uh, and neither is depression. So <laughs> we've really just ticked a lot of people we've off. Really so have far, a lot we of haven't people. even started anything serious. So Chase, just real quick, what process do you use to determine whether or not you should let someone into the Hall of Dogma? Well, I'm a little embarrassed here, but I genuinely go to their page yeah. and make sure they're not posting stuff about. Uh, uh, you know, Ray-Bans or whatever. Yeah. I kind of remember this guy. I went to his page. Yeah. He looked new. He didn't have any – he didn't – for one, he wasn't a girl that used the wrong pronouns because that's one of the top signs that it's a spam page, yeah. <laughs> uh, a girl that uses his. Um, and uh, I, there was no post, so I thought, man – I'm just going to roll the dice on this one. So it looks like uh, I've let everybody down. And based on that picture, I've egregiously let everybody down. Let me I, uh, let me read you a couple things off his profile. He works at Student of the Year, and he's, <laughs> he's self-employed <laughs> as Student of the Year at um, – Well, that sounds very upstanding. Uh, at um, – Employer Employed Workers Association, and he studied at going to school. That's, that's, the, name of his, that's the name of his school is studied at going to school. So I can definitely see why you you felt like this may may have been a um, a, legitimate a legitimate account. Well, everybody knows that the top union around here is the Employed Workers Association. Well, it, yeah, that's not made up at all. All right. Well, I just wanted to. I I went ahead and and removed him, Chase, and um, went ahead and deleted I'm, that post. I'm just gonna add him back. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe, maybe I just um, you might want to um, you know, 
maybe uh, consider tightening up the reins a little bit on your uh, okay who you let in. I know we're down a little right now. I know Emmanuel's out of the hall. Yeah. I know it's there's a little panic, but I don't think we have to pad our numbers by <laughs> by letting in. As someone pointed out to me, he even had bad in his name, B A D, right off the bat. Right. Like this, right off good. the bat. Yeah. So. All right, uh, episode ninety three. Chase, what are we going to talk about tonight? Uh, apparently, a lot of really weird things, and and we're, we barely started. But along the lines of serious things, uh, David, understand you have a nice icebreaker question uh, about whether or not something would disqualify somebody from being a elder or pastor of a church. Uh, we're going to talk about some ministry stories, and uh, Emmanuel is going to give us an update on uh, a special segment that we call "As the Tulian Turns." <laughs> So lots of uh, lots of things to look forward I, there. Although I, I can imagine, I, I've heard of that segment, but it seems like the last time I heard of it, it was named something different. Well, it changes. Okay, as the Tulian turns, uh, not to be confused with as the Driscoll turns. Yes, those are two different segments. Correct. Two different segments, but very similar in the way they unfold. All right. Driscoll hasn't turned in a while, though, right? So we don't have any. Uh, actually, I no, but I did. Uh, Driscoll's getting sued. Did you guys read about that? Sued? I did not. No, I did not. Uh, I will. Uh, I'll pull that up while we're doing this first uh, icebreaker, and then I will uh, give you guys a little info on that. Um, my wife asked me if we were talking about that on the show tonight. Uh, so I don't. Just to kind of get us going tonight, I saw this question on the internet the other night. Uh, I was being asked of some uh, of a pastor. Uh, I think I pretty much know uh, where you guys are going to fall on this. Uh, don't see us spending a lot of time on it. It's a topic we've approached before, but I don't think we've approached this particular question. This was the question: Would uh, same-sex attraction disqualify a man from being an elder? in a church or a pastor in a church? That was the question that was, was presented. Uh, Chase, we're just kind of going right at this one. What are your thoughts? All right, well, my initial thoughts are no, it would not. If you look at the qualifications for an elder in First Timothy and Titus, um, you definitely see... Uh, you don't you, you don't really see anything r related to that. I mean, I mean, I, I would flip the question around again. At least initially, I've actually thought about this uh, a fair amount since you 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 brought it up earlier. Uh, would improper heterosexual attraction um, disqualify somebody from being a pastor or an elder? And, and I think there the answer is no. Is is perhaps maybe the appropriate thing is mostly no. Um, the, the Bible says that um, lust, when it is conceived, brings forth sin, and and sin, when it is finished, uh, brings forth death. Um, which is kind of that's uh, I think it's James chapter one. Uh, I, I think it depends on what you mean by the word desire. Are, are we talking about somebody who? has same-sex desire but is not dominated by that similarly to an elder who might 
from time to time wrestle with heterosexual desire but is not dominated by that, I would say in either of those two cases, as long as there's real, genuine, biblical accountability and confession, that neither of those two things disqualifies. I, I personally don't know any pastor or elder that hasn't from time to time struggled with uh, lustful thoughts towards the opposite sex. Um, and I don't know why a a time-to-time struggle with lustful thoughts towards the same sex would disqualify you. Now that said, if it is a, if it is a, a dominating sort of thing, if it is a, a lust, for instance, that it is on the way to conceiving sin, or it is a lust that has conceived sin in the past, then I think you are dealing with a much, much more serious issue. Um, but, but I mean, in a lot of ways, I would say the Bible doesn't directly deal with the issue, but a person who has same-sex attraction that is acting out on that would be, I think, biblically in the same character, uh, category as a person who has uh, heterosexual lust or desire and is acting out on that and that would be I would say both of those would be disqualifying um, because that would that would run afoul of first Timothy 3 2 and probably others uh, that the elder would not be self-controlled all right so nutshell for you the attraction like the 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 nature of the attraction would not disqualify him it the disqualification would be if that attraction is beginning to spiral to a place where he doesn't have self-control, which is a qualification for an elder in First Timothy 3, um, they must be above reproach, sober-minded, self-control, uh, self-controlled, uh, respectable. So, so it's not the nature of the attraction, but it would it would more or less be whether or not they're able to control uh, that those sinful desires. Is that? Uh, well, okay, you, you're, you're, you? not not quite, okay. not quite. I, I think if somebody were to entertain lustful desires, you know, Jesus talks about, you know, if if you look upon a woman desiring in a, in a lustful way, that you are you are essentially engaging in adultery in your mind. I, I think the same thing is going on there. So if if a person, I mean, not only has I think if a person has same-sex desires, that they are actively indulging in lust for that. That is dangerously close to disqualification, even if it hasn't physically manifested itself yet. But, but hey, you're, you, I mean, I'm giving my opinion on something that the Bible is not definitive on. Okay, well, uh, that's really what I what I was trying to communicate by saying they're on their way to losing self-control. Okay, so or they're entertaining those thoughts. But but the the nature of the attraction you don't believe is a deal breaker in terms of in other words whether the the the, the desire is yeah. for opposite sex or the desire is for same sex that the nature of the desire to you is not what would bring disqualification. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very interested to hear what Emmanuel, uh, from his perspective as a as a, a counselor, is going to have to say about this. 
But at first blush, I, at first blush, I would say the nature of the attraction is not is not the thing. Now, now this gets into the issue, which I think is is kind of very hotly debated right now. And uh, I, I want to say Denny Burke, um, a guy I respect a great amount, is kind of on the side of people who believe that same-sex attraction in and of itself is a sin. Uh, not the acting out of it, but even the bent towards it. And I definitely think you could have a that that you can have a lustful attraction to either sex and it be sinful. But I don't know. I I, I don't know that the Bible condemns a same-sex impulse that is not that does not go to lust. I don't know. Look, this is this is a, this is a very hard topic. I, I believe the Bible is very clear. Homosexual sexual activity is forbidden and it is sinful. Uh, that is not something the culture likes to hear, but grammatically, there's just no argument about that. But is homosexual is homosexual temptation a sin? And I I, I don't believe so. All right, uh, Manuel. What are your thoughts? Yes. <laughs> what are your uh, thoughts? I actually was leaning one way to chase out of that last little bit about Denny Burke. Um, I think Denny Burke might have a point in the in the sense that the reason that homosexual desire itself may be a sin without even acting out is because um that desire goes against the natural desires that God set up, whether they act on it or not. And as far as I can, it's, you know, the way my, uh, from my ideology goes that, you know, we are responsible for our sin period. Um, even, even those sins that seem natural, even those sins that we, that we are powerless against in our own self, um, with that said, I don't know that, that, that a pastor. I don't think a pastor is disqualified because of it. However, if, if if it got out, I think that 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 pastor would probably lose some uh, trust in the con- with the congregation, mainly because there's some sins we're comfortable with and some sins we aren't comfortable with. Um, you know, I, I, so. I don't think they're disqualified, but but um, it, it's but I think eventually I don't say most churches, but a lot of churches wouldn't want a pastor who struggles with that. Like there are certain things that you just can't struggle with, you know, that are just taboo. I guess is the best way to describe it. Whether and it's not right that that's how it is, but people will be more comfortable with a with heterosexual desire uh, than they would be with homosexual desire, even though they're the same thing uh, as, as far as lust goes. Um, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I was going to ask you guys if um, as kind of a follow-up, what you thought the percentage, what you thought the chance was, percentage chance, that a person who admitted that they struggled, that that was their, 
and it was a struggle for them. They had it under control, um, you know, but they they did struggle with same-sex desires. That was a temptation that they had to continually put to death. What the what percentage chance they they make it on into the uh, being hired at a church? Uh, I, I tend to think it would be pretty low. Um, it, it's my fault. I, I don't I don't have anything to back that up on. I guess that's just that's just my fault. Is that I almost think you could get away with being open about heterosexual or pornographic temptations or struggles, but I, I tend to think that maybe. Um, the homosexual struggles you you wouldn't be able to get away with uh, being op- as open about. Uh, now I'm not saying that's true in in every situation, but I just think maybe the majority of it. Um, well, let me let me do this, David. Uh, this is from uh, uh, Denny Burke wrote an, a paper for the Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society in 2015. It was the the article is called "Is Homosexual." orientation sinful and this is part of his conclusion he says and and by the way i have enormous respect for denny burke um i i I really i really like the guy and this is this is what he says he says if same-sex attraction were morally benign that is harmless there would be no reason to repent of it but the bible never treats sexual attraction to the same sex as a morally neutral state Jesus says all sexual immorality is fundamentally a matter of the heart. Thus it will not simply do to avoid same-sex behavior. The ordinary means of grace must be aimed at the heart as well. And and I I totally agree with what he's saying there. The ordinary means of grace must be aimed at the heart. Somebody who struggles with, um, somebody who gives in to inordinate same-sex desire or heterosexual desire needs heart change even if that desire doesn't manifest itself as activity but where i'm not quite sure i i can un, i can say yes and amen to everything that denny burke is saying is i'm not quite sure and again i haven't read his whole paper maybe he'll convince me if i do i'm not quite sure that the bible discusses same-sex attraction it it doesn't but if you look at it from a standpoint well what is what is sin what sin is 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 failure is missing the mark that god has set for us right 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 does homosexuality hit the mark even the desire you know and and i would say i would say no i would say no to that Keep going. Then that must mean that homosexuality, that the, even the desire, is not God's highest and best, and therefore is is sinful. Um, and, and I think that's I, I think that is pretty much Denny Burke's. Uh, that's what he's saying. It's hard to argue with that. Let me ask you this, Emmanuel and, and David too. All right, so you're in a situation, uh, a guy's I don't know, sitting in a park, an attractive woman walks by. The, the, the guy is not, uh, is not actively looking, but she walks by. Maybe she's uh, dressed in sort of a provocative way, and a wave of desire passes over you, but you don't linger. You turn away. You quickly turn your mind to something else. Is there a difference between, number one, is that sin? Have you sinned? 
And, and number two, is there a difference between a guy that experiences that with a provocatively dressed female and a guy that experiences that with a provocatively dressed, I, I guess, same-sex kind of situation? I do, I mean, I do think it's a disordered desire, but how much of a difference is there between the two things? I, I think it depends on the extent of the desire that the guy has. If he, if he, if he's attracted to her because she's an attractive woman, I don't think that's a sin because God has designed men as far as I, as far as I know, like, I don't really know how attraction work in the garden, but as far as I know God designed men to be attracted to women the way women look, you know? Um, so you being attracted to the way a woman looks is not sin. You coveting that woman is you lusting after that woman is you. Um, if you're a married man, um, you, uh, then you start to get into, you know, adultery of the heart. Um, so it's, it, there's a line that is, is crossed between natural attraction and, and uh, sin. It's no different than we're supposed to like food, but there's a line between, hey, I like food and I have a food addiction, you know? Yes, yes. Um, because God designed us to like and enjoy food. Um, that's how he created us, to enjoy that. So... So I think it's different. So I'll say that has a that has a kind of a scale to where there's a line that's crossed. A homosexual desire always crosses that line because you're not designed to be attracted to a man ever if you're a man, or a woman ever if you're a woman, or a child if you're if you want to take it there. Like there are certain things that we're not designed to do. Let me ask you. Let me ask you a question, Chase. If <clears throat> picture for a second whatever your primary sinful struggle is, and, and not asking you to, to say it, just whatever it is. Uh, I'll say. I'll say it. Okay. <laughs> I'll just play it. No, that's good. Okay, so uh, whatever that core is, uh, you, the, the, something that you struggle with all the time. If okay. you had an opportunity, let's say. Jesus showed up to you in a dream and said, uh, or showed up, you know, showed up to you in a vision and said, "I'm not going to make you live with this the rest of your life if you don't want to." Say the word, and I will take away that temptation and that sinful struggle with you for the rest of your life. Would you? Would you say yes to that? Without even a, a moment's hesitation. All right. So I, I would too, and and. And this may be a bad, um, oh. this may be a bad road where I'm going, but my point is to this is I, I think that's proof of salvation. Like in my spirit, I don't want to sin. In my inner man, I don't want to do that. Like I, I, I know it's it leads to death. I know it leads to destruction. And if I could, if if the opportunity was there for it to be removed from me forever. Without hesitation, I would take it away because I, I don't want it. But my flesh does. Like in one of those moments that you're describing, whether you know when that moment. So it, maybe it's the illustration that you just described, or maybe it's um, you know whatever. Uh, I get angry. My flesh wants to 
do something and that is sinful. And, and so there is that pull between flesh and spirit. And, um, and, and so, I mean, within the gospel, it is that, that Jesus has come and, and he has died and, and removed our guilt. And I think we are in the process of growing in holiness and growing in sanctification. And the Bible does say we should be putting to death sin. Um, that should be something continual. But um, where I believe that we take heart is knowing, like in our spirit, like our spirit man doesn't want to do those things, even though our even though our flesh does want to do those things. And um, so part of that is, you know, like Emmanuel is saying, like how much do you give yourself over to that? I can really only go down a road so far, um, and, and, and I will admit sometimes I go further down that road than than I than I need to. But I can really only go down that road so far, and I just feel pulled back, like I just feel yanked back. And um, that, honestly, how far I'm willing to go down that road today is much different than it was ten years ago, and I, I hope that means maturity and I hope that means sanctification but um, I think that's where I have to settle myself rather than trying to figure out at what point do I move from temptation to sin because to me it's all kind of gelled together uh, I don't know it's a fine line it's like fine. yeah like it's a it's, it's such a fine line that that almost trying to figure out, okay, at what moment am I moving from temptation into sin? I don't know. And we won't know. It's, it's really more <laughs> of a God God knows, though, you know. Yeah, that, I, I guess that's – and that's – so I don't take solace in going – I don't comfort myself going, well, I really don't think that I'm – I'm sinning when that temptation comes, and then I, I think where I take my solace is, God, I don't want to do this. I don't want to sin. I repent when I feel like I have sinned. Quite honestly, I repent sometimes when I don't even know if I've sinned or not. I mean, sometimes my prayers sound like that. It's like, God, I, I don't know if I crossed over to sin there, but if I did, I am really sorry. Uh, and that may sound like a silly prayer, but I mean that's just sometimes what how it comes out for me. And 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 that's where I take my comfort is I, I really do feel like God is doing a work in me that in my spirit I don't want to do those things. I do them. I don't want to. I repent. I ask Him continually to mature me and remove those desires from me so I don't do those things. Um, and so that's where I take my comfort more than trying to figure out where do I move from temptation to to sin. Yeah, and I don't, I don't think you can actually do that. Go ahead and finish. Well, I was going to say this. So having said all that, though, I do think coming back to the question of um, what does disqualify you from being an elder – and going back and looking at those qualifications, the the qualifications to me, I mean, there's no mention there of any particular type of temptation. Uh, there's nothing in there that really says, like, you know, I mean, there, that, that talks about the nature of a temptation or the nature of a struggle. Um, there's nothing there. I, I think there's a... Where's the passage that talks about it's outside of the qualifications of elders, but talks about 
essentially the temptations that have come against you are common to man. Um, is that in James? That is First Corinthians. Um, uh, I meant I meant First Corinthians when I said James. Yeah, First Corinthians <laughs> ten thirteen. Okay. Did you just look that up this year? Or do you just? Uh, I was trying to act like I didn't. I was trying to act like that uh, I pulled it out of my brain because I want to kind of give the impression that I have most of the entire Bible memorized. Uh, now, have you crossed over into sin there with your pride issues, or is that just a temptation? No, no, it's definitely a temptation. Okay. I probably did sin there, but I confessed my sin, <laughs> so and I'm hopeful that there will be some redemptive purpose that comes out of it. All right. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. So, I, you know, I there's a you're all dealing with to me that that passage. You're all dealing with the sin nature. Um, when you're dealing with sin, there is not anything abnormal happening to you that's not happening to other people. You are you are all dealing with the, the fallenness of your flesh. And when I go to the qualifications for elders, to me, it is more about where you are in relationship to that temptation, whatever it is, which I, I go back to, um, you know, be they should be above reproach they should be self-controlled they should be respectable they should be hospitable um not quarrelsome not a lover of money so there is some you know no no not being greedy there i just as I, I to me it would fall under that category of of self-control not a drunkard not violent uh so there are a few aspects there that are labeled that are they're labeled out but uh I would I, even understanding and, and probably wanting to read more about what Denny Burke is talking about. Just asking the question: Are you disqualified from being an elder? I would have to go to the passages where those qualifications are listed, and I would have a I would have a hard time saying that particular desire would mean that you're disqualified. Reading what I'm reading here, I understand. I guess if Denny Burke makes his if that case is even having the desire means you don't have self-control, I don't think he's. No, I don't. I don't, I don't think, think he makes that, that case. I just think he's saying the the, the desire itself is a sin, um, not just the action. Um, yeah, let me read a paragraph on that. He says, "So how do we answer the question? Is same-sex orientation sinful?" And he says, "Insofar as same-sex orientation designates the experience of sexual desire." For a person of the same sex, yes, it is sinful. Insofar as same-sex orientation indicates emotional romantic attractions that brim with erotic possibility, yes, those attractions too are sinful. Insofar as sexual or orientation designates an identity, yes, that identity too is a sinful fiction that contradicts God's purpose for his creation. Honestly, I think I'm fairly persuaded by what Burke is saying here, that I I, I think I can see that same-sex attraction is sinful. So so let me let me kind of uh, I think we're still going to conclude the same thing. Let, let me let me personalize this for you guys. So I guarantee you this week more than once I have had a sinful sexual desire 
and, and multiple other sinful desires. Um, I have not acted on that sinful sexual desire, but, but I have had it, uh, again, more than once. Does that, part one of the question, does that disqualify me from being a pastor? Part two of the question, if it were same-sex sexual desire, would it disqualify me? No. Yeah, I don't, I don't think either one disqualifies you. It, um, because the Bible doesn't say it disqualifies you one, and if you're going to disqualify somebody for for desire, then nobody is fit to pastor ever. In, unless you're like, I don't know, some weird person who is <laughs> in some kind of state that they just don't, have, they're just incapable of having desire. I guess. Um, I guess maybe it's a, a pastor with who's just chronically depressed all the time. And doesn't have a desire to do anything. Um, we're all disqualified if that's if that's the standard that you can't have sinful desires. Yeah. So that, that even Genesis four, I mean, we were we were told, or mankind was told, you know, sin is crouching at the door. It is its desire is for you, but you must master it. Um, and so. Uh, this is subjective what I'm about to say because it is this is this is David's thoughts um at the moment but I th- I would say no to to your question the first part no I I don't think that disqualifies you because I don't think it masters you like I don't think that sin is your master I I go back to where I was saying earlier I I believe that you know Christ I believe that you are in healthy um, accountability uh, relationships with other guys and you confess your sin and you repent of temptations and sins that you have. And as I look at your life, I I don't think it masters you. I think you are self-controlled in those areas um, in terms of not acting out that sin and... And, and so I, I don't think that disqualifies you. The, the, the blanket statement you made there, I would have been able to make the same blanket statement about my own self this week and my own temptations. And um, I don't feel like that masters me. And now, hopefully if it was, people around me would see that, that those guys that I've allowed into my life accountability-wise would ask the right questions, and hopefully they would see that. But um, but I don't feel that's disqualifying at this point. Same thing for the second part of your question. I'm going to right now arrive at the same conclusion that if it was same-sex attraction, but it was not something that was mastering you. Um, you know, I would say the same thing. I don't think that's disqualifying. I could be wrong. Uh, again, a lot of that's subjective. I'm basing it on not seeing it in the qualification for elders in Timothy and Titus, where the nature of the desire is not mentioned, and that's the, the my prime basis for saying that it would not be a disqualifying um, temptation. Mm. 
I, I will say this is is my final uh, the, my final word on the topic. Uh, at least I think it will be. If uh, if church members heard me confess uh, on the podcast, they listen to the podcast. The next couple of weeks, they they heard me say what I said uh, that there had been more than one time in the past week that I've had sinful sexual desire. Uh, most of them uh, might raise an eyebrow. You know, essentially to hear a pastor admit something like that, although I doubt there's a pastor out there that hasn't, wouldn't be able to say the same. But if I were to say the same exact thing, but I, I added same-sex desire to it, I suspect, David, that the, the church would fall apart or, or, or something remarkable. That's probably too dramatic. I think something it would be a big deal. It would be would a happen. big deal. Precisely. It would be a big deal. Um, how big of a deal, I don't know, but it would be a bigger deal than saying what you just said. Um, and I think some of that is because same-sex sexual attraction is sinful, and I think some of that is because we have an ungodly, unbiblical prejudice against homosexual sin, especially in churches in the South. Uh, that has served to alienate and push away people that are struggling with that rather than gospel them. Well, I agree with what you just said. Um, secondly, I'll, I will say probably wouldn't surprise me if five years from now I did this podcast, did a podcast like this, and said something different. Um, <laughs> you know, because it may be that uh, again. I, I may be wrong about my approach or how I'm thinking about it, so I um, that is how I'm viewing it now, though, and and based on what I see in Timothy and Titus. Um, um, but you know, I, I do think uh, that your point about how the how the church is reacting is is a valid one. I also would say that. There's a lot of things that we're not talking about here, so we're making a blanket statement. Um, is someone dealing with same-sex attraction, is that disqualifying them from being an elder? Some of it would be the circumstances surrounding it to me. Uh, so in other words, if someone was just coming out of that lifestyle and they were, they were breaking free from that and they were moving towards sanctification... Um, they may not be qualified right then to be an elder. Uh, the same, though, I would say for someone who maybe just broke out of an addiction to pornography, I don't f necessarily believe two months down the road um, might be in that position to where it was it was time to move into being an elder. Again, some of that is subjective, um, in my opinion, but uh, I, I think there's a lot of extenuating circumstances around the issue that could slightly change my answer from, oh, no, that doesn't disqualify you, to I don't think that disqualifies you, but I also don't think it would be wisdom for you to try to move into a role like that right now. So um just want to throw that out there. The, the blanket question is what we were asking, which is just kind of a general one. Okay, I did tell you guys uh, before we move, uh, Chase, we gotta, we'll go to your topic. Um, but uh, I did want to uh, 
bring you up to speed on the Mark Driscoll thing. So um, there's a lawsuit against Mar- Mark Driscoll um, that is being brought uh, against him by four former members of Mars Hill Church, and they are suing him directly, accusing him of a continuing pattern of racketeering activity. Uh, essentially, uh, these are four former members of the church who claim that um, during uh, Mark Driscoll's time at Mars Hill, uh, he would push raising funds for overseas missionaries, but the money that was raised did not actually all go to overseas missionaries. Some of it ended up being spent on other ministries, or it just says being spent on the church at home rather than overseas. Um, And so they claim that he uh, did that pretty continually throughout his time there uh, where they would solicit donations through the mail and the Internet saying it was going to be used for a specific purpose, and then the money was not used for that purpose. It was used for something else. None of the allegations that I've read uh, say anything that it was used personal in nature, um, you know, it didn't go to him necessarily or, you know, pay for him a car or anything like that, but that just the money was not used uh, completely the way that he said it would be used. So they're suing him. So there you go. Interesting. Yeah. I thought Christians weren't supposed to sue Christians. Or is that you're more of a guideline? <laughs> I think that is a uh, I think that is a firm prohibition. Uh, to be fair, it says there are four former members. It doesn't say they're Christians. That good uh-huh. point. Uh, boom. Solid. Well, most most church members are Christians, <laughs> so I, that that's true. Yeah. All right, Chase. What was what was your? If, if we're being honest, though, mo- most money raised from missionaries, and I don't I can't speak for every single ministry that raises money from missionaries. But it didn't all go to the missionaries. There's overhead. Yeah. Always overhead. So um I don't know where they're saying the money went to. I mean, new car. I don't, I don't know, but I don't either. So it's but, you know. I I I'm gonna wait for more details. I would like to hear Driscoll's take on that. Uh but I'll say again and, and not trying to be flippant, but it is some of it to me it is it is It is really like this lawsuit came about at the exact same time that he announced he was starting the church in Phoenix. Yeah. It, it just – there's a part of me that goes, this is a continued effort to ensure he does not move forward. Yeah. So what you're saying is they hate him. That, that's my thought, but I, I may be wrong. He may – there, there may be something to it. They could have been okay. planning this lawsuit for months, and it just happened to hit – so how, right I mean, how long how long has this happened though? I mean, he hadn't been there in a year or so, right? And well, the church has shut down now. Yeah, I know, but I'm just saying, like, why now? Like, it, it, has it just taken this long to get all the stuff together? Did they sit idly by and didn't do anything for 15 years while the money was being misappropriated, or did he just started misappropriating funds like a week before he left? It's like. Yeah, you know the the timing is suspicious, and it's probably just people who are. And they're suing him directly. I guess there's no church to sue. 
Was he I, the was he the CEO or something? I don't I don't I don't even know. Was he the uh, CFO? Did he handle all the money? I mean, they're suing him. Does that mean he's supposed to pay those former church members back? They're suing him because he has the name. I understand, but I mean, are they, are they wanting? Are they wanting the money? Are they just? I don't know. I don't, I mean, yes, that's true. You win the lawsuit, then who benefits? Yeah. Who? So, how much money are they wanting to get, and what would they do with the money? I, I will say this: uh, if you read First Corinthians six fairly carefully, it is not a defense of suing another Christian to say, "Well, they were wrong, and they did wrong." Because very clearly, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 7, Therefore, to have legal disputes against one another is already a moral failure for you. Why not rather put up with injustice? Why not rather be cheated? In other words, Paul is saying it is worse to let yourself be cheated. It is worse to put up with injustice than it is for believers to drag other believers to court. Now, you might think that's un-American. You might have a problem with that. Uh, it was written by a Roman citizen almost 2,000 years ago, but I believe it's binding, and I mm. believe it's true. Good job, Emmanuel, bringing that up. That was, uh... By the way, they are they are suing um, uh, Driscoll, and it looks like uh, former elder, executive elder Sutton Turner, and these are these are actually members who are suing to get their money back. Apparently, it does not. It says the lawsuit does not name a specific amount they are seeking in damages, but it does say uh, they donated more than ninety thousand dollars between two thousand eight and two thousand fourteen. Uh, and had they known how the money was being used, they would not have donated it, nor made Mars Hill Church their home. That's probably most church members. Part of their allegations. Nobody are, agrees how the money is spent at their churches, like 100%. Mo, I don't say nobody. There might be somebody who's like fine with whatever, but everybody has quibbles. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Do, do you guys remember when it came out that, that Driscoll had paid the company uh, to, get his, to get his book on the top bestseller yeah. list, New York Times? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes, I remember the that. The church paid $210,000. To get the book on the bestsellers list, so that's part of what they're saying was misappropriation of funds. The and church see, I, should have never paid for that. At a well, I agree church, with that. At a regular church, I would say that that was probably true. But at a mega church, they spend all, they waste all kind of money on crap, in, in my opinion. So, like, I saw a church budget; they spent fifty thousand a year in copy paper. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? Cool. Holy cow. So, you know, at least that's what the budget said. Maybe they were doing something else with it, but, you know. Okay. <laughs> but but think about this for a minute, just the more I think. And I'm not saying I like the idea of spending it on a book, on, you know, book uh, promotion. I'm not saying that's a good thing, but I'm just saying at a mega church, the budgets are weird is what I'm saying. Like, it's – you wouldn't like it, <laughs> you know. No, okay, but, but here – I get your point there. Just think about what they are doing, though. I mean, okay, again, Christians suing Christians, and, and I mean that is, as Chase just pointed out. I mean, you got to, you got your passages. I mean, I think that is forbidden. But beyond that, they are like they gave tithes to the church, and they they're seeking to get that back. <laughs> like, they want God. they want their tithes back. Does God give refunds? 
That's just I've, that's unheard of to me. <laughs> uh, I've I've heard of such things before. I, I Have don't. you? Uh, oh yeah, like a, a lawsuit about how church spent money. You know, one question I would ask about the whole book thing that that Driscoll did is, um, oh okay, well here, right here, it, it says that Driscoll claims to have donated the proceeds from his book sales to Mars Hill Church. Now, if that is the case, if, if that really happened, in other words, if the church spent $220,000 on, uh, on promoting the book and he donated all the proceeds to it, I, I don't have nearly as big a problem with that because I guarantee you that book made a lot of money. Yeah. And, and if it was an investment that actually... Uh, that actually turned a profit for the church. I'm not saying this. This I don't think that's how we should run business. We should do things, but um, I think that's a very important part of the equation that we don't know whether that, or not it's true or not. Yeah, it's where that, that brings that up a whole other can of worms. Should churches have investments? Oh well, yeah. I mean, I, I'm not crazy about that, but let's just say, for instance, that real marriage made a million dollars for. Uh, uh, for Mars Hill, Th then I would kind of just say, you know, I'm not crazy about the way it was gone about, but everybody shut up because that kind of worked out not in Driscoll's favor. Yeah. You, <laughs> a lot of it, like you said, where where is that going? Um, I think it's interesting. You remember, like, I remember David Platt when he wrote Emmanuel's favorite book, Radical. Uh, uh, he took all of that money and he said donated it to um, the radical ministry overseas overseas work. Uh, when <laughs> I remember when <laughs> I he donated to it, so he donated to his own ministry. Is that what you're saying? He did donate to his own ministry. Yeah, I, I think that's well. Okay, I, I believe is that so is what, generous. I believe that is what happened. But now his ministry didn't pay him. I don't. Think, I know. I, I don't know. Just, I'm but I will compare it to uh, what's Elevation Church's pastor's name? Stephen Furtick. Stephen Furtick. When he wrote his book, uh, Sun Stand Still, he got. I, I watched the sermon. He said, I, "I want all of you to know my." He, the book came out. He said, "It's out here on the tables. Uh, you can you can you know buy it here for a discount." I want you to know that all of this money is going to feed hungry children. Mine. <laughs> and that's what he said like he got and and I actually I mean that was all he ever said about it so I mean I actually think um it's funny yeah so supposedly from what I'm reading on an old Christianity Today article Mars Hill uh said that the Driscolls um donated money from the sale of the book um at, at, at one point $200,000 had been given to the church from the sale of the books. So it sounds like whatever the church invested was a wash. Um, and I, I don't know ultimately how much they had they donated out of it. So anyway, as the Driscoll turns continues. Tully and Trevision, um, he lost his job again. And the question came up I was when I was reading the article. They had another article that happened like a, a year or so ago. It was an older article about a pastor who I actually liked, and I actually used his marriage uh, teaching um, when I was uh, 
planning on getting married, and I listened to his marriage stuff. Uh, Bob Coy, who was yeah, yeah. pastor of a mayor of a big mega church in Florida, and and he was a, and I really liked him as a preacher. Um, he was enjoyable. He was good. He was kind of like he reminds me of Andy Stanley before Andy Stanley was Andy Stanley, but with but he used the Bible more. Chase hates him already. No, no, he was. I mean, he was a good communicator. He just communicated from the Bible more than Andy Stanley did. And I'm not saying that Andy Stanley like is all philosophy and stuff, but this guy was a a sound Bible teacher. And when he was when he resigned for a moral failure or something like that, uh, they took his sermon. They they wanted to take his sermons down from the website, or actually, they didn't take his sermons down. They wanted to. But they were so. But people were still downloading. Like nobody cared that he that he resigned. And the question came up: Should you listen to the teachings of a disgraced or fallen or removed uh, pastor, pastor, or should you disregard them? And the article had like some different opinions, and they were they were varied. And it's kind of an interesting question. So that's the question we're, we're yeah. Going so, and, and just in case, anyway, we 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 dealt with the uh, Tullian story before, but he was the yeah. he. If you don't know him, he's the grandson of Billy Graham. Uh, he was the senior past, pastor at Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church, um, and he resigned. Uh, they had some problems in his marriage. He resigned um, from that church after admit, admitting to an affair. Um, and some eyebrows were kind of raised. Uh, he was uh, pretty quickly hired. I don't remember the time frame, Chase. You might, um, but he was pretty quickly hired um, at Willow Creek Presbyterian Church. No, no relation there to the um, the uh, Willow Creek Association churches, but Willow Creek Presbyterian Church in Winter Springs, Florida, as um, some type of uh, ministry development um, leader. And uh, essentially, the church pastor said they hired him not really to give him any pastoral responsibilities, but to allow him um, to sabbatical in place, um, you know, kind of be, uh, get things back in order, take care of his family. And, um, but just recently, um, I'll just read the, the statement. Um, Tullian came forward to the elders of Willow Creek with some previously undisclosed failures in his life, uh, later confirmed to be inappropriate, uh, an inappropriate relationship, um, and so he was released from the position at the new church. Uh, it's unclear. It seems, uh, according to the article we read in religionnews.com, that those unappro- uh, inappropriate relationships um, or inappropriate relationship may have been from the past, so not a new inappropriate relationship that had happened, but rather something that had just not been disclosed before. So, so that that that's kind of the background on, on the Tullian story, and it, it is leading us into this place of, as Manuel said, this question of. When you have a pastor, and I, believe, and I believe not to cut you off, but I believe that his old church, when he left there, they took down his sermons. Okay, I think I read that. 
So, so that's the that's the, the, the this question came up by the way with Driscoll. We mentioned him earlier. Now he did not have a moral failure, and that's kind of an interesting situation because according to Mars Hill, the church that he was pastoring, he was not disqualified from being a pastor. Yet when he did resign, uh, there were people who were saying, you know, his old teaching. Um, you know, essentially, I, I had people coming and asking me uh, at our church who were Driscoll listeners, is it still okay to listen to his teaching? Do you think that, that, that it would be bad to listen to the things that he had taught before? So uh, I, I think it's a relevant question and one that, that people are uh, – that people would ask. Uh, so Chase, uh, we'll go over to you for some opening thoughts. Uh, disgraced or fallen pastors listening to their older teaching, yes or no? Wow. Well, I, look, I think I, – I, let me say it definitively. I think it depends on their response to what happened. Um, are, are they broken uh, and, and do they repent? And, and is, there, is there adequate time? Um, I I cannot I I don't think naming examples well I I will not name example sample I won't name the person but uh, it, one of the churches I used to serve at uh, was on staff for many years there is a fairly famous minister that uh, comes there a lot um, and ministers but this guy in, in the last few years. Uh, he was uh, very well known in, in his particular circle. Um, he had an affair, left his wife, uh, and, and essentially rebelled against m at least the early stages of reconciliation and restoration that other pastors tr uh, tried to lead him through. And I, I don't know his heart now. Um, I, I I don't know the situation very well, but but he listening to him and such, which I've done very little of, it is extremely concerning to me, because uh, you you it's not immediately obvious that this is a man broken over his sin. I mean, he left his his wife and think they had children at the height of uh, a very big um, uh, ministry situation and, and now he and now he's with uh, another wife in another situation and it and it would appear there's been it, it would appear he's doing the same sort of ministry he did before um, contrast that to somebody like say a, a Gordon McDonald uh, that, that's not a name that probably everybody would know today, but in the 70s, I think it was the 70s, Gordon McDonald uh, was uh, the president of InterVarsity Fellowship. He was uh, kind of the head minister of World Vision for a while. He, uh, ironically enough, wrote a book called Ordering Your Own Private World, which is which was kind of about how to live a godly well-organized, tight sort of life. And then it came out that he had an affair a couple of years after that. Um, 
But his response to that affair and his restoration to ministry really seemed to portray a broken man who fully repented and turned back to the Lord and went through a extended period of um, of showing that he was broken and repented. And he ended up actually coming back to the church years later, I think not quite 10 years later. He ended up coming back as pastor of the church that he was pastor of before. And that was a little controversial. Now the guy's in his 70s, his wife is still with him, and, and he travels around and and points people to their vulnerability to falling and exhorts them to be open and to be broken. So I, I, I've never been a huge Gordon McDonald fan one way or the other, but I would listen to the resources of a broken man who's been restored. I'm not interested in investing my time in, in being taught by or ministered to by somebody who has fallen so significantly and has not shown what John the Baptist called for fruits proving or leading to repentance. So, so to you, the current state of their life would definitely impact previous uh, teaching and whether or not that teaching was helpful or should be listened to. Um, that- I think godly brokenness, you know, Psalm 51, after David uh, was confronted by Nathan, he wrote, the sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. God, you will not despise a broken and humbled heart. I actually think that's one of the signs that somebody is actually in Christ, that if they fall in such a terrible way, that their their response in the grace of the Lord and the grace of God and the Holy Spirit is a broken spirit, uh, a broken and humbled heart. So yeah, I'll, I'll listen to a person like that. I'll take heed. So, so, so this is inter- it's an interesting take because... Um, it, and I do think it is dependent on the person, the situation. So, like, I, I know of someone that was a local pastor um, in our area who taught for years, um, several years, in a in a particular way. Um, and um, at the end of that period of time, he did not have a moral failure, uh, but he had... A variety of situations that happened in his life where essentially he kind of broke broke down to the point of he was not going to continue doing ministry the way he had done it. And he came to an understanding that the things that I've been teaching the last three or four years have just been wrong. Um, the theology was wrong. And, and so essentially he recanted, he stepped down, uh, the church ended up folding, and he essentially recanted of, of all of his old teaching. Um, that is a situation to me where previous teaching is obviously um, invalidated. But uh, let me use a, a personal example. You did this earlier, Chase. So let's let's say I've been 
I, I have been at Agape as a pastor on staff for uh, 10 years. Uh, I've been preaching side-by-side side with you off and on for the last, what, seven, six, something like that. Let's say that, um, I mean, I, I've had no uh, major sin issues or, or fallings, failures during that time or anything like that. But let's say that, and you know, God forbid, you know, in the future something happened and I had a moral failure. Does that invalidate what I have taught the previous six or seven years? When there was no moral failings, there were no issues, but I let my guard down, something happens, and I do have a failure, and I am disqualified from being an elder, I step down. Does that, even for a time, would that invalidate the six or seven years worth of teaching that I had where I was walking close with the Lord and did not have any moral failures? That's a, that's a great question. Um, I know you. I, I know you personally. I've seen the fruit of the work of God and the Holy Spirit in your life. So if such a thing happens, my question will not be, wow, was David really ever saved? I, I would, I would. My question would be, you know, how did the enemy so infiltrate his life to allow that? Um, but, but I would never question your salvation. But somebody who didn't know you as well as I do, and and we have a, a tight relationship, they should rightly ask the question: Is this person a real man of God? And the only way that that would be shown is if you produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And, and that would take time. Uh, the, the article you've linked to us um, from Christianity Today quotes a guy named Kurt Fredrickson, who uh, is at Fuller Theological Seminary, and this was his take on it, and I happen to agree. He says, when leaders step away from ministry because of moral failure, their written and recorded teachings should be suspended for a season. Once restored, changed, and humbled to ministry, their teachings can become available again, telling the story of God's goodness and restoration. Uh, I would want to see the word repent in that sentence and broken in that sentence, uh, but but I, I completely agree with what he's saying. If somebody's fallen, uh, you know, their teachings should be shelved for a time until it becomes clear that the Holy Spirit has restored them and that they are indeed rooted and grounded in Christ. I have a, I have a feeling that's what would happen. Uh, I want to let Emmanuel talk, but I was going to say I have a feeling that's what would happen in that situation or scenario that I gave. I think all of what I had taught would have would be pulled down. I don't think you would recommend it to anyone. So I don't I don't see you during that time period going, oh, you know, David taught a really good series on this. Um, but I will say that throwing it to Emmanuel, I question whether or not if that person doesn't over a period of time or the next few years really show repentance, I question whether or not that truly invalidates everything they taught during that time. Uh, I'm not saying that 
that I'm right, I am saying I question whether or not it would invalidate their work. In other words, if they were never brought back to a point of being qualified to be a pastor. I'm not really necessarily talking about repentance, but they, they just they don't do the work or for whatever reason they, they never get brought back to a place of being an elder or a pastor. I'm not sure that that means that all of their previous work has no value or no truth in it. Uh, Manuel, what do you think? Okay, um, this is going to be a little bit nuanced because I kind of agree with Chase in a way, and I agree with you as well. And I think it really depends on what the failure was and what the content of their teaching is. Because um, I don't see it as... The the sermon itself might be fine, but if you're removing somebody from ministry, is audio still... Cons- in a sense, they're still ministering through audio. Um, through recorded message, if that makes sense. Yeah, that that does make sense. So I could see, like, 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 Tulian's church. They took his stuff down. Um, if he came back and was restored, maybe they'll put it up. I don't know, but they're trying to stop him from ministering, and they might see that audio, recorded audio, is an extension of ministering. Now, in Tulian's case, I think it gets a little muddy because I wonder if his teaching led to his failure. Because Tulian, you know, he's been accused of being a, a antinomian because of his, he's kind of a hyper-grace guy. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with, with that term, hyper-grace. Oh, yeah. We, we talked about that kind of at length in some earlier episodes of the, okay. uh, and the antinomianism it was a topic in some of our first episodes. Well, for those who don't know what hypergrace is, it's kind of there's a couple of ways to describe it. It's kind of a merging of justification and sanctification, and so you are not responsible for your sanctification. You are not responsible for what you um, do because that's legalism. And essentially, you are kind of like passively going through this life. And when the Bible talks about sin and don't do this, don't do that, the Bible is kind of lying to you because it knows you can't do it and you're going to do it anyway and there's nothing you can do about it. So if you're going to sin, you know, sin, you know, uh, spectacularly and <laughs> repent and, and repent, you know, even more um, and, and just lean on the because that makes you uh, lean on the grace of God um, even that much more um so they don't think that you got to do all this work for your own sanctification because grace right um so that's kind of it in a nutshell and i might not be doing it justice but from what i understand of of, uh that's that's one of the reasons why he was kind of kicked out of the gospel coalition um although it doesn't take much to get kicked out of the gospel coalition um but he was kicked out because they thought that he was getting a little too hyper grace and, and and kind of playing down the Christian imperatives, the biblical imperatives to live right. So in his case, I think that that you know, more so than maybe someone else, that his his teachings might um need to be taken down because they might have 
contributed to how he viewed his situation. And it's like, well, you know, if I'm going to have an affair, I'm going to have an affair, and I just lean on the grace of God. Um, because the way he presents it is he didn't need to to guard against sin because of there's grace for sin. Um, although, now, he didn't consider himself an antinomian, by the way, and so he wouldn't consider himself that, but his opponents uh, do. So in his case, I think that his teachings might be, uh, well, they're not even might be, but they are probably tainted with that same stream of thought that may have gotten him in trouble. Um, and you don't need much to get you in trouble anyway when it comes to sexual failure. Um, but when you add that on top of it, it might have been a, uh, a powder keg. So I think I'll say it, it depends is, is my answer. So, Chase, here's an interesting question then. Um, depending on your view of Solomon and his life, is it possible that we are reading the biblical writings of an apostate? Yeah, I've, I've actually uh, I've wrestled with that very question um, a little bit, especially when we were going through Ecclesiastes. Um, from, from what we understand of Solomon, in a lot of ways, he did not end his run well. Yet, the testimony of the Lord about him is, is that he asked for wisdom and he was given vast amounts of wisdom. Um, now, I, 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 would, I would kind of... Uh, I think the writings of Solomon have been fulfilled, superseded by the New Testament. Um, and much of what he wrote is no longer true. <gasps> How about that? Oh. Although it was true when he wrote Mr. My mouth is agape. Well, listen, uh, Chase buys New Testament-only Bibles, so it does, it's not, it, <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's not a real say, surprising... Should we allow Chase to talk Old Testament? <laughs> it's, it's, it's not a real, that's not a real surprise. <laughs> hey, I'm currently teaching Old Testament. Does, um, does your school yeah, know but you, you don't know anything about Old Testament? <laughs> you start off every class going, hey, just want everybody to know, none of this stuff actually matters. Uh, we have an updated version of this, and so you, you know, I'm going to teach it, but you don't really need it. <laughs> yeah, that is not what I do. New Testaments, and you'll be good. I, I do. I, do I think the Old Testament is profitable. <clears throat> I, I do. I, I would not use apples to apples there because obviously, to me, ultimately, the, the the author of the Bible is God, and and so to me, it's it's the human writer is nowhere near as important like we don't really know who wrote hebrews and it doesn't matter because ultimately we know who wrote it and that's my view on it so i, I to me ecclesiastes and proverbs uh, song of solomon they all have authority because you know ultimately god um god gives them authority jesus gave them authority um even in his earthly ministry so and I have and I have it on good authority that uh Solomon was never an apostate. Um 
unlike some uh, gospel friends, I know my Old Testament. <laughs> and in Second Samuel chapter 7, God makes a covenant with David, and he promises David that his son would be like a son to him, and that, you know, he will... Uh, you know, that he will punish his son. However, that his love will never be taken away from him as he took it away from Saul. So oh, there you go. So and look, I, I didn't. I didn't and I, I agree with that. I think Solomon <laughs> sinned significantly in turning away from uh, uh, turning away from God to the foreign idols espoused by his many wives. But I, I definitely think the the passage you quoted and others seems to give us indication that there was perhaps repentance at the end of his life. Yeah, God wasn't going to let him yeah. let him. Uh, and, so, and some die in his sin. some people believe yeah. he wrote Ecclesiastes at the end of his life as kind of a, almost a book of looking back. And so, what was that, Emmanuel? A mea culpa. Yeah, yeah. And so, uh, all right, aside from all of that, uh, just something that popped in my mind, uh, so I threw that out there. Um, Anytime I get a chance to correct Chase, it's a good time. So (laughs) there you go. Uh, I would say if someone truly was apostate in that they walked away from their faith and never came back, uh, being a good Calvinist uh, or a good Calvinistic salvation guy, I would assume... Uh, in my belief that they were never truly saved, and therefore um, I probably would not. Yeah, I, I heard you. I heard you growling. I'm just saying. I got. Uh, I got that it through to myself. Mangled and misused verse in all the get, Bible. Now you get outside to, of Romans nine. Now is, you get to correct me. They went. They. I know this has turned out to be my lucky night. They went. <laughs> they went from us because they were never. They were never with us. They were never of us. Like. Like I get it, it applies to that situation, but to apply it to every situation ever is a little. Well, actually, it's a little. Well, that's not even the verse I was using. But that's the uh, one that that's the that's the normal Calvinist talk. I don't know. Hell, I know. You so have what, a list of you have a list of of verses that Calvinists can't use to defend Calvinism. The problem they're like, is they're like Jehovah's Witnesses. It's like, like it's like nineteen pages long. So you just it's, it's, it's a lot of verses. It's probably not even a page long to be honest with you. <laughs> Jacob, I love Esau, I hated. Uh, Emmanuel's Bible doesn't have Romans in it, uh, um, so his is Old Testament and every New Testament book except Romans. <laughs> I, you know. <laughs> I, 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 All right. So anyway, back to my, 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 not my favorite past chapter three, but that's okay. All right. So um, chapter four, maybe. You like the total depravity part, but then you just have to after back chapter off of four, it, it kind of gets bogged down. Okay. My, my, point being, wow. my point being, I would view that person as having not been saved, and therefore I, I probably wouldn't um, put put any stock or time into their teaching. Um, now, if you if you thought they were saved at the time and they just walked away from that salvation, then maybe that teaching during that portion of time would be fine because they were actually saved then. Um, but I I do think that if a pastor falls. Uh, let's 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 talk it uh, not really being an issue of repentance, but rather an issue of restoration. I think Emmanuel brought up a good point. Tullian was an elder, was a pastor, therefore his teaching, if I can use the word, carried that authority with it. When he was disqualified from being an elder, therefore uh, would it not mean that his teaching 
would be disqualified uh, from being elder level teaching, and therefore you would remove it from the websites. The question for me would be, if he is never restored as a pastor or an elder, should his teaching ever be restored um, to, to, being, um, to being worthwhile? And, and I, I tend to think that at some point, yes, uh, even if he is never restored as a pastor, um, that his teaching when he was a pastor before his disqualification could could still be helpful or valuable. As well, let me, let me disagree with that slightly. Do it. Disagree. Let me let me let me do it in a hypothetical sense because I, I'm just going to be honest. Uh, I, I've never had a particular bent towards uh, Tullian. I haven't read his books, and, and I, I'm familiar enough with him to understand what Emmanuel is saying. Uh, that he, you know, he, uh, of, of that he is a real big free grace guy, and I'm all about that. My question is, has he gone too far? And I don't know the answer, so I'm going to use a hypothetical. Let's say there's a hypothetical pastor that over-focuses on grace and under-focuses on holiness and sanctification and self-control and dying to the flesh and, and, and taking up the cross daily and crucifying sin. Let's say there's such a guy as that. His, his primary teaching is bent towards grace and, and not God's call to holiness. And such a pastor has a, a moral failure or a series of moral failures. I would say in that particular case, maybe I would quote what Jesus said, you will know them by their fruit. If somebody has a distinctive sort of theology or a distinctive sort of bent to their teaching, um, that is, you, you know, I, I mean, you, you know, kind of the kind of thing where you say, well, I'm just not sure if that emphasis is a biblical emphasis because they're really known for this this particular thing and they have a moral failure. It is conceivable that that's precisely what Jesus meant when he said you'll know them by their fruit. In other words, if, if they're following their teachings and they fall, I know it's not the Bible that's wrong. I know it's not the Bible that's inadequate or the Holy Spirit that's inadequate. So, again, I'm not saying that's the case with Tullian. I don't know him well enough. Never read his books, never listened to a sermon. But I can see an instance where there would be somebody who would over-focus on grace, who would allow themselves, especially in kind of the way Emmanuel is describing, would allow themselves essentially to, or, or even almost permit themselves to have an affair or something like that. And that would show a significant enough flaw in their teaching that I would say pretty much the whole thing is compromised. Uh, yeah. Okay, so we're... we're the, the premise of my argument was that what they were teaching at the time was solid. So um, you're using you're using that language following their own teaching. I think you could teach something at some point in your life and truly be following it and and truly walking with Christ. But at some point, you fail. 
you you have a, I mean the Bible warns us against that it warns us against us all you know in Hebrews um, um, you know uh, to uh, encourage one another every day that none of you are hardened by the deceitfulness of sin uh, so I mean there's warnings there that it could happen that someone who is walking close to Jesus could at some point not be walking close to Jesus so um, let, let, me, let me give a, a, a Piper quote. Uh, he was asked a question about Driscoll when Driscoll had a failure. Now, again, even that term, it's not, it wasn't a moral failure. It was a – he resigned from his church, and some people felt he was disqualified from ministry. We could even argue that point if he was ever disqualified. But Drisk, uh, Piper was asked uh, about something along these lines. This was, this was Piper's um, – comment. With regard to Driscoll's books and whether they should sit on shelves in bookstores or churches or home uh, homes, that's a tough call. If he is disqualified from being an elder, should he still exercise the teaching office of an elder through his books? That's how you might ask that question. But sooner or later, a book becomes detached from the personal life of an author, and it stands on its own merits as true or helpful or not. I can see a temporary reaction to Mark stepping down by churches where they pull back those books to not give a public affirmation of Mark or his mistakes, but maybe in years to come the books will emerge as helpful, since I think most of what he has written has been true and helpful. So let me just use Piper as an example. Let's say, and I don't know exactly how this would happen at his age, but let's say Piper had a moral failure later this year, or a Tim Keller had a moral failure, and and let's say that they are immediately disqualified from teaching ministry and like Keller from his church or what have you, and and let's say they never are restored to being an elder, maybe not because they don't come to full repentance, but maybe just because, um, uh, you know. It, the the process they go through simply never leads them back to being restored into a position of being an elder. Does that mean that everything they have ever taught is invalidated? And I just I I just say no. I I, I think at some point their stuff is true and helpful and good right now, and I don't think a moral failure at some point in the future. Um, if it was in that one place and time, would negate for all time everything that they taught. Yeah, I don't um, think what they said is invalidated per se, but it may invalidate their ministry. That's why I say it's not it's not every instance. I think it's a it's a case by case basis. So in Tulian's case, I was I would say that it may. I don't I don't know if he's he's he hadn't always been a hyper grace guy. I don't think he probably was. A regular grace guy, a biblical grace guy. <laughs> um, so I don't think it. You know, if if he said one time that you know Jesus rose from the dead, well, obviously that's not. You know, that's not uh, disqualified because of what he happened to him later. Um, I guess the question is: Should you should that person still have a ministry platform? Uh, via audio I, I was is a better way to phrase it other than are, is their teaching disqualified 
Um, I and I and I like what what Piper said about the books and stuff, it, and that is true. Over time, it won't matter. Um, we still sing songs from people who walked away from faith. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I was just saying that earlier. I mean, I guess, I mean. Or didn't believe at all. <laughs> they just wrote some stuff. And I, I don't ever go check. Like, I mean, somebody hands me a book from a, I mean, like, I like A.W. Tozer. I don't know. I've never went and read how his life turned out <laughs> in terms of, like, the end. Did he finish well? I hope he did. I'm just, I'm just saying, like, I've never went and checked that out. Tozer's actually an interesting case. Uh, I think by all accounts he finished well, except he seemed to be quite alienated from his children, hmm. which, as a pastor with children, you know, you, you and I'm a Tozer fan. Um, does that const does that constitute, if that's true? Um, does that constitute some sort of ministry failure? Does that, does that, you know, you know what I'm saying? If, if it does, there's a lot of, because if you, you know, you know, you know history, there's a lot of pastors, uh, great pastors in history who did not have a great relationship with their wives or their kids. Um, William Carey, uh, for instance, with his wife. Yeah. Um, there's somebody I'm trying to think of who had a horrible relationship with his children and wife, but I can't think of who it is. I know Jonathan Edwards had a great relationship with his kids. I, I think he spent time with them every day. One, he had like he had more kids than you did, Chase, and he spent time with them individually every day. I believe um, that's a lot of kids. You got more than Chase. It's a lot of it's a lot of time. Like, what did he do the rest of his? You know, because he had like 20 kids or something, right? Uh, he had a lot. I don't know the exact number. That's a good one. Um, but uh, but yeah, I, I think there's I think there's there's some nuance to it. I don't think it's every it will be that you would disqualify everybody, um, but I think it just depends on what they were teaching. Um, and eventually, like 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 Piper was saying, time will kind of erase the author. Um, yeah, uh, let me let me throw out a specific Tozer quote because I, I don't. I, th this is there's some nuance to the question I'm going to ask. Uh, I don't think what I'm about to read in any way invalidates the ministry or the writings of Tozer. I, my question is, does it invalidate his way of ministering, his focus, his wife? Uh, Tozer died, and, and his wife was a widow. She remarried somebody, and this is what she said uh, a few years after that. She says, "I've never been in ha I've never been happier in my life." Aiden, who's A. W. Tozer, Aiden loved Jesus Christ, but Leonard Odom loves me. Hmm. Now, ideally, I think you want your wife to say. My husband loves Jesus Christ, and she and he loves me. And I, you know, I'm not again. I'm not. Tozer is is a, a, a giant of the faith, and just because uh, Tozer's wife didn't feel his love doesn't mean he didn't love her. She might have just you know been wrong, but still, that's. I, I don't want to end my run and my wife or kids 
have that feeling about me. That would constitute a failure in my eyes. If I did that. That's a good point. Jonathan Edwards had 11 children. So he, so here's an example along that same, wow. same, same vein. So Chase, I, I believe you can take him. You've got time. <laughs> I'll, I'll uh, get busy on that. How many do you have? How many do you have, Chase? Uh, five at the moment. Nice oh, child's play. Five. Six more, no problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you could. Always- well, guys, it's been a good podcast. Uh, it's it's a one forty eight now, and uh, if we're gonna get if we're gonna get six more, um, uh, I better church. go. You got church today or something? I, I do, but you know. Six kids, that's not going to happen overnight. <laughs> um, no. Six tuplets, you, it's, it's been done. I guess you, you have just proven me wrong for the second time today. Not unless you stole six children, but then you're going to be um, disqualified from being an elder, and we're going to have to remove all of your sermons, which will be an issue because the guy that does the website's on sabbatical. That is true. Technically, kidnapping is not disqualifying. Yeah, because you stole a cat, and you're still... <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean you found a cat. Now, it, does say, it does say that you have to be uh, above reproach, Chase. If you went on a kidnapping spree, that could be... That could put you... What if you kidnap children right that there. nobody really wants? Oh, wow. Still, is that still wrong? Listen, I maintain that cat was that hanging cat out was, at my campground. My he camp just spot. happened to walk across your path, and your, and your children wanted him. I guess you, that cat was that cat was homeless. So I want to wrap up that last topic we talked about. And this is not a long statement, but it's, it, it just popped in my head. So sometimes at church we sing this song. You remember the song Healer? Yes. So I think it's from the... I think it was, was it a, I don't know when it was written. Um, it's fairly recent. But anyway, we sing that, we sung that at church last, not last Sunday, but a couple Sundays ago. But anyway, the guy who wrote that song, it was all like, he, it was a lie. Like he wrote the song, but he, he was saying that he wrote it because he was battling cancer and he was terminally ill. Um, but then his dad outed him and said, no, he never had cancer. But he was right. instead he was trying to hide his porn addiction or something, um, and we still sing that song. Like I don't know if the, I don't know if our worship leaders know how that song came about. You know, it's it's a nice song. So along the same lines, it's like should people stop singing that song? Should it be pulled away? You know, um, just something to think about. It, it it's kind that, of the same situation, but it, I, I think that's I think that is similar. I, th- there, there's just a portion that I remember when a, a a pastor here in Birmingham, who was very very well known, when he had a, it came to light that he had had a moral failure and had had one for years, like he had been almost living kind of this double life kind of situation, and and so when the new pastor, you know, he was removed, uh, they brought in another a new pastor, and and one of the first issues that that new pastor had to deal with was all of the people that had been saved under the old pastor's teaching, the disqualified pastor's teaching, 
they had been saved under his ministry and had been baptized and and this was not a situation where he was just disqualified in that moment but he he had had an ongoing moral issue during the time that he was teaching them and they had come to know Christ and so their question was am i really saved like was that valid was my baptism valid and and um i i just remember hearing that new pastor speak and him saying you know ultimately like yes your your salvation is valid your baptism was valid because it was never based on a man it was based on jesus it, it was based on the work of christ and and the holy spirit in your life and so um i, I not saying that means that uh, you know we could just listen to everything because everything was true but in some point uh, to me if it is if it is pure and if it, if it was helpful and if it was from god then it it's always going to be from god even if the person uh who delivered the message proves to be what we know most of us to be anyway which is fallible Okay, let me let me. Uh, I'll offer my closing statement um, on, on the topic. Let's let's take the person you're talking about um, who had an affair for years while he was pastoring. Uh, let me ask you a question: Do you think it's conceivable that while he was having that affair, that the Holy Spirit was calling him to repent? Yes. Do you think it is conceivable, possibly even likely, that uh, there is a sense in which our hardened sin causes the Holy Spirit to withdraw or causes us to hear from the Lord less clearly? Uh, yes. And so, therefore, I would say that it is conceivable that a pastor in such a situation could very well literally be teaching the words of the Bible in a true and helpful way, but in a way that is, you know, sin dulls our hearing and our ability to be led by the Holy Spirit. I know there's plenty of times where my ministry has been compromised by sin and my hardness of heart. And, and, and in a sense, that, that could introduce an impurity. And I guess my question would be, yes, some of the things the pastor you're talking about uh, and, and any others uh, said were helpful and good. The guy you're talking about is one of the better preachers I've ever heard. But uh, I'm not sure I would download some of his greatest hits messages when I could spend time listening to somebody who hasn't fallen. But you wouldn't. You would not. Would you have told those people that their salvation was invalid? Uh, no, and their salvation isn't valid if he hasn't fallen, because he's merely a messenger. It's he's not the one that saved them. Uh, the people who were baptized by John Piper are not secured in salvation just because they were baptized and and responded to an unfallen preacher. I agree, but I mean, there. My point was. He was preaching some level of truth that the Spirit used that they came to know Christ. The preaching Sinners of can preach truth. There's no doubt about it. There's no doubt about it. Well, look, we could go all night. I, I think I think we have we 
we have gone online. I think we have a lot of agreement on the topic. I think there's just some nuanced. Uh, I don't even know if it's disagreement. Just some nuanced thoughts. So, uh, but yeah, that's that was good. It was two a.m. What do you think the longest? What is the longest gospel friends we've ever recorded? I don't know. Close. I don't think. I don't remember actually. I think we're going to be pushing. When all is said and done, we're going to be pushing uh, two hours and sixteen minutes. Well, you know what? To, to everybody who complained last week about not having a podcast or a week before about it being short, here you go. It, it, there you go. I mean, but I mean that with a lot of love. Yeah, put it in your pipe and smoke it <laughs> in a good, encouraging way. In your J pipe and smoke it. It's actually easier to do one long podcast than two short podcasts, anyway. So. Well, enjoy There's this no one because this will probably be. Uh, we probably won't do another one for three weeks. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right, guys. Well, I guess I think we're going to sign it. up, sign off. Yeah, I'm I guess give we are. Me a bowl of cereal. Shut up. And what? Oh, you can't have cereal. Are you? <laughs> are you trying to lose some weight there, Chase? Yeah, it's time for my abs to make an appearance again. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's it's been it's been Thanks. it's been thirty seven years. Yep. So that's been quite a while. I had quite the set of abs when I was uh, six. <laughs> hey, look, that's probably if I ever had abs, it would have been when I was abs that you could see. It would have been when I was five or six. I had abs until yep. about five years ago. I had an eight pack. That's impressive, really. So you had yeah. yours and somebody else's. <laughs> Look, abs are overrated. Depends on who you talk to. Yeah, abs are not overrated. You talk to me. Well, you're married, so they don't do you any good. But let me say this: I care nothing <laughs> about abs on a guy. Well, that is that is a good confession. And right if, there. if you did, we would have to uh, wonder if if you should be qualified to pastor or not. Should I be? And should we pull all my sermons down? Yeah, <laughs> those are those are really deep, good questions. Well, folks, I hope some of this has been beneficial to you. I know some of it probably hasn't, but you probably will want to join us next week or next month or whenever in the world we get around to producing episode 94 where you might hear David say... Something from the Old Testament which Chase won't listen to because, well, it was in the Old Testament. (laughs) Nice. Jesus is a friend of mine. Jesus is a friend of mine.